Hey, uh, obviously this is going to be a popular series because we're jammed in here, so if you could scoot in for just a second, uh, if there's any open seats, uh, move it in, sit two to seat, sit on somebody's lap, get friendly. Um, and uh, before I get started, I just had to say this, everybody that's up on stage is a volunteer except for, I mean, and that's really important to us, we don't pay people to play in the band, but we got a couple up here that I made them to stay up here because John and Kim, come on up here, I just want to say something about you guys. John and Kim, oh yeah, they love you. I just happened to notice it was 10 years ago this week that I asked them to temporarily fill a position for us and help us start our Saturday night service 10 years ago. So they've been 10 years with Parkview now since then temporarily. Would you please thank them for me? Thank you guys. I just thought I'd need to say that. Oh, you got a standing ovation from three people. That was awesome. Um, welcome. We're glad you're here. Again, just crowd in, try to make it happen. We've been busy all weekend because um, I'm doing some controversial stuff, right? Uh, we're going to do My Friend Has a Question. Basically, if you want to know how this came about, uh, last fall we put out a survey and we said, uh, what are some things that you want to know? And I picked basically the top five things, questions that you had, and I'm going to address them for the next uh, several weeks, and uh, some of them are pretty heavy things, so uh, I, I hope that you'll pray for us as we're dealing with it. Before I get into it, I just want to encourage you. I know I tell you to be in a small group all the time. I want to tell you one more time, you need to be in a life group because they have lots of fun. I was at a men's group in, in a house in Tinley Park this week on Wednesday night, and uh, next door to me was another Parkview group that was meeting. They were having small group, and when they figured out that I was next door and that my truck was parked out in front of their house, they decided to plastic wrap the entire pickup, the entire Ford Explorer. So here's a picture of the small group doing nasty things to my car. So I walk out. It's minus two degrees, and I can't get into my car. This is what happened, okay? This is, this is what small groups do for fun, just in case you want. And this sign that you see right here says small groups rule, okay? Um, Super Bowl was awesome. Congratulations to you Packer fans and blah, blah, whatever. And... Um, and uh, I know that really it was about the commercials, am I right? And I think everybody's convinced that Darth Vader was awesome and he ought to get an Oscar, that little kid, he was awesome. And the Doritos commercial you will see again at Easter about, you know, Grandpa, is that you? That's hilarious. But the one that, that really got me as I was thinking about this series that I'm getting ready to do was the Bud commercial uh, with the gunslinger. Because I feel like walking into this subject as a guy who wasn't Catholic and walking into this subject, I feel kind of like uh, the bartender in this commercial. We just ran out. Blue jean, baby. <laughs> L.A. lady. Seizures for the band. <laughs> Everybody! That's so funny. That's what we're going to do at the end of this. You, you know, you people that are 
Catholics and you're like, what is he going to say? At the end, we're just going to get together and we're going to sing Elton John together, okay? Why, why am I doing this series? Because my uh, friend has a question. And Walter Martin said, when we fail to answer someone's objections, we become more of an excuse for them to disbelieve. And I don't, I don't want to do that, okay? The Apostle Paul challenged us. He said, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most out of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Peter said, if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Do it in a gentle and respectful way, but always be ready to explain it. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes people will they'll ask you, right? How come Christians are anti-gay? How do you explain a God who allows suffering? What, what is the deal between the Bible and science? How does all this work? And when we don't have an answer, we just become kind of more of the situation for them, okay? Now, I'm not giving you answers over the next five weeks to help you argue. Please don't, under, please don't misunderstand this. Our goal as a church is to reach and to raise and to release. We want to reach those who are far from Christ. We want to raise them up to be fully devoted followers of Christ. And we want to release them out to do ministry. Nobody ever got argued into the kingdom of heaven. Never, ever happened. So today I'm going to talk about the difference between us and Catholicism. And again, my knowledge of Catholicism is limited because I'm an outsider I can relate to the story of the guy who was hit by a bus in New York City and he's laying on the curb and he's dying and the, and the cops are there and he knows that the guy's going to die and the ambulance isn't going to help him and, and he says, is there anything I can do for you? And the guy's a Catholic and the guy said, well, can I get a priest? I need last rites before I die. And the policeman asks around, you know, crowds gathering, it's New York City, is, is there anybody here that's a priest? And nobody, nobody, nobody. Kind of, finally, this little old man walks up, this little 80-year-old Jewish man walks up and he says, look, I'm not a priest and I'm not even a Catholic, but I've lived by St. Elizabeth Church over on First Street for 50 years. I think maybe I understand Catholic litany. So he says, okay, come on over. And he knelt down next to the man and he said, G38. B14. I7. I'll keep going until the slow ones get the joke. That may be about as helpful as me today, okay? Because I didn't grow up in the Catholic Church. But, but I, I don't want to be labeled as a Protestant either, okay? Please understand that. A word Protestant is about protest, and I'm not protesting anything. I'm a child of God, and I'm a Christ follower. And I'm happy to work with anybody that's a child of God and a Christ follower, okay? This is not, amen, you can amen that. That's all I care about, okay? This is not, let me be clear, this is not a sermon to give you ammunition to go back and argue with your Catholic friends about why they're wrong and they ought to come to park you. Nah. No. Okay? No. Not doing that. This is me explaining the difference. Okay? Here, here's why I say that. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we saw a man... <laughs> uh, these people crack me up. Teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop. Because he was not one of us. Now, I, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the life of Jesus that didn't get recorded in the Bible. And I'm very, very sure that one of the things that happened right here is that Jesus slapped him up the side of the head. And said, don't stop him, you knucklehead. Whoever's not against us is for us. Okay, this is really, really... What was he doing? He was driving out demons. Okay? The last thing we need is more Christians fighting against each other. 
There are a lot of Christ followers who worship in different kinds of churches with different names on the signs. They're Catholic, they're Lutheran, they're Presbyterians, they're Baptists, even a couple of Dutch Reformed people I know. They're actually Christians. I have to have a new group to pick on. I'm a Cub fan now, okay? On Judgment Day, on Judgment Day, there is not going to be a test and God's not going to say, okay, which flavor were you, okay? And the problem is, I mean, I'm going to tell this joke and I can tell it about any different denomination because a lot of us feel like when we were growing up, at least, we felt like we were the only ones there. This guy dies and he's before St. Peter at the pearly gates and Peter says, okay, what religion were you? And the man says, Methodist. And Peter looks at his list. He says, okay, go to room 24, but be quiet as you go by room eight. Another man comes, he's next in line, he said, what were you? He said, Catholic. He said, okay, room 18, but be quiet as you go by room 8. Third man said, what religion were you? He said, Presbyterian. He said, okay, uh, room 11, but be quiet going by room 8. And this guy's heard the whole thing, and he's like, hey, Peter, I get that we all have our own little rooms, but why do we have to be quiet going by room 8? Peter said, oh, room 8's full of Baptists, and they think they're the only ones here. (laughs) I'm sorry, I had to tell it about somebody, okay? I already picked on a reformed. I mean, come on. That could be, that joke could be told about anybody. It could be told about Catholics or Methodists or the Christian church that I grew up in. Absolutely. Because we all have these little ideas that our church is right and everybody else is wrong. To the extreme that this church made t-shirts that said, if you ain't a member of New Rising Missionary Baptist Church, you ain't. And it really says that word on the back of their t-shirt. Okay. What do you think God thinks about that? In Jesus' eyes, there's one church. The last prayer that he gives in John 17 is, I'm going to remain in the world no longer, Father, but they are still in the world. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name so that they may be one as we are one. May they be brought to complete unity so that the world will know that you have sent me. Paul told the church at Ephesus, listen, there's one body. And there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that's what you were called to. There's one Lord. There's not a Catholic Lord and a Protestant Lord. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So, again, I want to say I'm not an expert on Catholics. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma. There's like six Catholics in the whole state, okay? I moved here when I was 28 to take this church. When I moved here 28 years ago, I'm, no, 21 years ago, I'm not that old. When I moved here 21 years ago, honestly, I thought the Hail Mary was a football play. I grew up in Oklahoma. It's about football, right? I'd never heard the Hail Mary prayer. My knowledge of Catholicism was limited to what I'd learned from watching The Sound of Music and how do you solve a problem like Maria. That's about, about all I had, really. So when I moved here 21 years ago, I had to surround myself with some people that grew up because the truth of the matter is, according to the Catholic Church, the demographic of the South suburbs is 70 to 80 percent Catholic people. And one in four Americans call themselves a Catholic and a billion people worldwide call themselves Catholic. So it's important for us to understand what's going on. And here's why this is important to Parkview. I want for you, if you grew up Catholic or you've ever been a Catholic in your life, to raise your hand. Look at that, okay? Okay, it's pretty, pretty much be easier if I said, how about this? If you weren't Catholic, raise your hand, okay? That, that, I mean, it's about 50-50, isn't it? And, and here's what happens. I get this from Catholics all the time. Catholics say, <coughs> well, tell me what the difference is between the, Bi- you know, the Bible and how come the Bible's different and what about Parkview and what makes Parkview different and is it legal for me to be here and are you going to report me? 
You know, does Cardinal George have secret cameras in here somewhere? And I get also questions from those of you who aren't Catholic. Like, why do they do the things they do and what's all this stuff about? So, first of all, let me say we have a lot in common. Remember that up until um, 1100s, everybody was together, and then the Greek Orthodox broke off, and about the 1500s is when the Protestant Reformation happened. So up until that time, we're all in one big Catholic church, okay? And Catholic means universal. When you see the word Catholic in the small c, which we're going to read in just a minute, that means universal. Big c means the denomination, okay? We were all together up until basically into the 1500s. And the beautiful thing about what the Catholic Church has done for us is, is multiple. There's, they preserve the Bible. I mean, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have the Bible and Gutenberg and all those things. If it wasn't for them, I don't think we would have nearly held on to the value of the sanctity of life as we have and, and, and how valuable it is and then it begins in the womb. Uh, they, they care for the poor like nobody ever has. I mean, look around the world. It's just Catholic charities that have done so much. They've emphasized reverence and worship. We, we have a lot in common with them. As a matter of fact, I've given you a card today. Um, and what I'd like for you to do, it's in the chair back in front of you or underneath you up there on the front row. Uh, what I'd like for you to do, this is a, think of a person who introduced you to Christ or influenced you most in your faith and write their name on here and, and, to, and, and send them this card or write a little note on the back or send them an email. Here's what I want. I, I want you to do something. And I'm thinking, don't, don't send them back in here. Okay. Send it back to somebody that helped you along the way. I'm hoping that there's, a, there's an old Catholic priest who was really influential to you when you were growing up. Or there's a pastor that's still around somewhere. Or there's a, there's a teacher in a school or somebody that, or a grandparent or whatever. And you can say, you know what, we were talking about the differences in faiths and everything at our church. And we were reminded that we should go back and really honor the people that instilled that in us in the very first place. Now, what I want to do... Right now, is I want us to read the things that we have in common all together very easily um, in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is something probably most of you grew up reciting at some point along the way. It's not in the Bible like this, but all the things are biblical ideas, and it's something that Catholic Church and uh, Protestant churches and you know non-Catholic churches all really believe alike. So what I'd like to do is start this way and start with the unity factor. So would you stand with me, and I would like for us all to repeat the Apostles' Creed together as we do this. I'll put the words on the screen. Let's do it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus, his, his son. <clears throat> he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Now that's what we agree on, and that's what's really important. We could end right there if we wanted to. Catholics believe that, I believe that, and that's the stuff that's really important. But let's talk about the differences. I'm just going to give you four. I think they kind of sum up everything, if I can get everything under these four differences. Um, and the first one is this. The first one's kind of overarching of everything. And it's, just, it's, it's not right or wrong. It's just that these are two different ways of doing things. Number one is the Bible is our sole source of authority. Catholics look to the Bible and sacred tradition that has been handed down. We look to the Bible alone. 
Okay? Vatican II document says, In order to keep the gospel forever whole and alive within the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors, handing over to them the authority to teach in their own place. That's the difference. The Catholic Church believes that the tradition has been handed down, that the apostles handed their office down, and that, the, that as much as it was important that the apostles wrote the first scriptures, that the new apostles have the ability to add to or to subtract from the scriptures. And that Pope Benedict XVI is the 265th Pope of the Roman Catholic Church with a line that leads all the way back to Peter, who is the Catholics believe the first Pope. Now, where do they get that? Well, Jesus is with the disciples one day in Matthew chapter 16. And the disciples are all gathered around and Jesus says, hey, all the people are saying all these different things about me. Some think I'm Elijah reincarnated or whatever, brought back from the dead. Some think I'm a teacher. Some think I'm a prophet. Who do you think that I am? And Peter, who is always the first one to talk, and usually it was to put his foot in his mouth, this time got it right on the nail on the head, said, Jesus, you are the Christ, God's Messiah, the Son of the living God. Boom. I believe in you. You are who you say you are. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said, Now I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Catholics believe that Jesus was saying on the rock of Peter, a person, the Pope, Jesus was going to build his church. And non-Catholics believe that Jesus was saying the rock was Peter's answer, and not Peter himself. Jesus is the Messiah. God's son, the son of the living God. That's the rock. That's what I believe. Okay. The tricky part for me with Peter being the first pope is, is dual. Number one, he was married. And we know this because Jesus healed his mother-in-law, for which we'll never know if he was really thankful or not. But he did. Okay. I'm just saying, you know. And number two, we know that Peter was wrong. We know that Peter was not infallible because Peter was wrong because later on Paul had to challenge Peter on the fact that Peter was believing that the Gentiles needed to get circumcised before they came to Christ. And Paul said, no, they don't. They don't need, we don't need circumcision. They don't need to become Jews before they become Christians. And Peter was saying that and Paul had to confront him. Now that doesn't mean he wasn't the first Pope, but that's the reason that I don't believe in that. And that's the reason, the other reason is I believe the scriptures are there as they are in, in perfect form for us and they don't need to be added to or subtracted from. Vatican II, again, and I quote, consequently, this is their, this is the way the Catholics believe. Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything that has been revealed. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. Okay? I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong. I'm saying it's a different way of doing things. People say, well, Catholics have these other rules that aren't in the Bible. Yeah, they do. It's not because they like rules. It's because they believe in the church authority has been handed down to the popes, and they believe that it has authority in the daily life of the believer. So if you're reading through the Bible looking for something about birth control, you're not going to find it. There's nothing in there about birth control. Uh, not meeting, eat, eating meat on Friday, priesthood, doctrine of purgatory, limbo, infant baptism is not in there. Eternal virginity of Mary is not in there. Infallibility of the Pope is not on there. All this stems from sacred tradition. You may have heard about the monk that was just assigned to his new monastery and they were going to copy scriptures. And, and so he went into his first assignment. He was really excited. He'd been studying and now he was ready to copy scriptures because that's what they did. They copied scriptures all day long. And he got his assignment and he got his, his, his book to look at. And he looked at the book and he said, you know what? Is this the original? 
And they said, oh, no, no, that's just a copy. You're copying from a copy. And he said, well, hang on a second. I mean, how do we know that the copy's right? What if somebody way back a long time ago messed it up, and now we've just been copying a mistake and copying a mistake? And they said, well, I don't know, we've always done it this way, but you have a good point. So the head monk went down into the basement to look at the original text, and he'd never done that before, and he was down there for hours. And finally, somebody decided they better go down and check on him. And they found him over in the corner, and he was just crying. He was weeping. And they said, what is wrong? And he said, the word is celebrate, not celibate. (laughs) That's funny right there. I don't care what you say. That's funny. (laughs) Priests not marrying is not in Scripture, okay? Thankfully. I'm, I celebrated 27 years with that beautiful woman yesterday, that's it, Friday. I'm happy about that. Woo. Golly. Hebrews 4 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Okay, It, 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 is, it is good enough for everything that I need. Timothy, Paul told Timothy, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. That's pretty much like all the way. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's, what, that's this is the difference, okay? They believe in the Bible plus sacred tradition. We believe in the Bible. Number two, <clears throat> that we believe in the priesthood of all believers. In the Old Testament, they had priests. The Jewish system, they had priests. The priest was the one who was the holy person who got to go into the holy of holies and hang out with God. And the normal people like us, well, well you, they didn't get to go in with God, <clears throat> Okay? Because only the priests got to go in. The normal people, they had to hang out out, you know, the Jews got to hang out over here, and then the Gentiles had to hang out way out here. And you got closer to God by how high you were in office, okay? Very, very important thing happened when Jesus died. I probably don't talk about it enough because it's just a little part of a sentence in the Gospels. But it says that when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn asunder. It was ripped in two. What was that? The veil was what separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The veil was basically God saying, I'm inside of here and you people all have to be out here and I can only be with the priest. But when Jesus died, the veil was torn, not from bottom to top, the scripture tells us. The veil was torn. It's a cool scene in the Passion of the Christ. The veil was torn from top to bottom. Symbolizing the fact that no longer did you have to have a specific office or be a priest or be somebody special to have access to God. From now on, because Jesus is our high priest, we all have access to God. There is nothing in the New Testament about clergy or laity or some special group of people that were commissioned to do something special. When Jesus said, go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them, he wasn't talking to me, he was talking to us. He was talking to fishermen and tax collectors and ordinary people like us who were his disciples. Okay? They were the ordinary people. And the clergy deal just, it just gets in, it just gets in the way. Please don't, please don't think of me as clergy. Please don't think of me as somebody special, somebody that's different than you. It really gets in the way. My, my favorite illustration of that, for those of you that are Catholic, is my favorite America's Funniest Home Video episode, which is, the wedding stuff just cracks me up, because I've done so many weddings. It just cracks me up to watch weddings that get screwed up, because it's so easy for it to happen. And my favorite of all is the Catholic wedding, where the priest is administering the sacraments during the wedding, 
and the woman has a dress that doesn't quite come up all the way, and she's rather blessed, and, and so, and so, and so he's getting ready to give her the host, and he drops it right down in there. You know what I'm talking about? It's the funniest ever. I mean, he drops it in there, and he's like, uh-oh, what are we going to do? Because uh, you can't touch that bread. And she's like, well, you can't touch those, so I don't know what we're going to do. It's really, really awkward. That was never in the New Testament. When you read the book of Acts, the church is getting started. It says that the disciples were, and I quote, unschooled and ordinary men. It says that there was nothing special about them except for the fact that they'd been with Jesus. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 5, You are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the whole church. He's talking to everybody. He's not talking to a special group. He goes on in verse 9 and says, You, all of you, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. And again, did you notice who was writing that? You know, it wasn't even John, it wasn't Paul, it was Peter, the first Pope guy. Okay? He's saying, everybody is a priest. What I want you to understand is that that's why we allow anybody to do baptisms or serve communion or pray or visit the sick or share Christ or lead worship. <clears throat> because in Acts chapter 2, when the, when the church got started, they used words like they and all and everyone, and we were all supposed to be doing that. The call to salvation is a call to the priesthood. The call to salvation is an ordination for ministry and for mission. And, and yes, there are some pastors and teachers and apostolic gifts. It says in Ephesians 4 that those are there, but why are they there? Listen to this. He gave those gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? In order to prepare God's people to serve. In order to prepare God's people to be the priests. We're the administrators and you're the ministers and we're supposed to be all working together. God wants us to be equipped. He wants us to learn to feed ourselves and he wants us to go out and do something for the kingdom. You are never designed to come in and sit and let somebody throw morsels of food into your mouth. You're designed to be your own believer and learn to feed yourself. And you're designed to go do something. So if you're just now getting that, then walk out of here today and go do something. There's opportunities for you to sign up to serve right out there in the lobby. You can get signed up right now. Third, we admire Mary, <clears throat> but we don't pray to her. I've got to talk about Mary. Young Benjamin was being really selfish one Christmas and uh, just, you know, he'd written out his list to Santa and it kept getting longer and longer and longer and he'd seen every Santa in every mall and he was really all about the list and all about his stuff. And his dad finally said, you know what, I've had enough of this. You sit down right there in the family room, you look up at that mantle, you see that nativity scene, you know that this is about Jesus' birthday. I want you to sit there and write Jesus a letter for his birthday. Benjamin sat down and he thought, well... I'm still going to make this happen. So he goes, Dear Jesus, if you bring me everything I want for Christmas, I promise I'll be good all year next year. And he thought about it. He thought, Nah, that's probably not, not going to happen. So he scratched out year and he put week. I'll be good next week. And he thought, Nah, that's probably not going to work either. So he went up and he grabbed Mary and he wrapped her up in a towel and he stuck her under his arm and he wrote, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. <laughs> <clears throat> Mary, 
Mary was the one that was chosen by God. She's the mother of Jesus. I mean, there's a special relationship there. But in Catholic teaching, Mary is elevated to the place of special sainthood. She's called the mother of God. She's called the queen of heaven. She's called the eternal virgin. She's someone who receives our petitions. I mean, the idea is if you want to go, you know, and want to get to somebody, you go through the mother. And the Hail Mary that many of you said many, many times along the way ends with mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pope John Paul in uh, the new millennium at the year 2000 at the Church of Mary prayed this prayer. Oh, mother. You know the sufferings and the hopes of the church and the world. Come to the aid of your children in the daily trials which brings to each one. And grant that, thanks to the efforts of all, the darkness will not prevail over the light. To you, he's praying to Mary, to you, dawn of salvation, we commit our journey to the new millennium so that you will guide all people that they may know Christ, the light of the world and its only Savior who reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. That's the way that the Catholics believe, that they have to go through Mary to get to Jesus. And I don't, and we don't. Paul told Timothy, there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Hebrews tells us that my high priest is Jesus now, and I can go to him and him alone. John said, my dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father on our defense. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay? There's nothing ever in the New Testament about praying to Mary or praying through Mary or praying to or through anybody else. Again, you go back to number one, they have the, the, the sacred tradition, and so they've added that to Scripture, so that's where they come up with this. I'm just saying, that's the difference, okay? Catholics believe that Jesus Christ is the righteous one and that he died for our sins, but their view of saints and their view of Mary sometimes gets in the way for people. It distorts this idea of going straight to Jesus as our central focus. The whole idea of sainthood. It's not, <clears throat> it's not in the Bible the way the Catholics have it. There aren't special people that are saints and special people that aren't saints. Paul wrote every one of his letters to the saints at the church at Ephesus, to the saints at the church of Philippi. Who are the saints? Everybody. Saints means holy ones, those who are being sanctified. All of us are saints. All of us are being perfected by the work of Jesus on the cross. And Mary is blessed among women, but she wasn't perfect. This doctrine was added much later after the New Testament. And she did have other kids. They're mentioned in the Bible. She couldn't be the eternal virgin. She has other children. And frankly, knowing what I know about Mary, I think she'd be really uncomfortable with the title of Queen of Heaven. Because she was the greatest of humble servants in the Bible. And the greatest example of faith we will ever find. And we should honor her greatly, but we don't need to go through her to get to Jesus. He's right here. Last, fourth. We trust in God's grace alone for salvation. I like the way Heibel's, Bill Hybels uh, summed this up. I use his terminology. The non-Catholic position being the Jesus plus nothing plan. And the Catholic position is Jesus plus something plan. Major reason for what is known as the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s was the growing conviction on the part of a few key Catholics that the, in the Bible that a sinner is saved by faith and faith alone. And one of them was Martin Luther, who was a Catholic scholar studying for the priesthood. And he's reading along verses like Romans 3.20, and he says, By the works of the law, doing good works, 
No one shall be justified. And he's getting confused. And he gets to verse 24. He says, justification is given as a free gift of faith. And he's even more confused. And he gets down to Titus, where Paul says, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy that he has saved us. These these Catholic reformers started to, to believe in salvation by faith alone. And by that time, there were so many rules and regulations added to the Catholic faith that it was really muddy for people. And the Jesus plus nothing plan was born and was born again. And the Reformation started. Now, I'm not saying that the Catholics don't believe in salvation by grace, but they have this added sacramental system that keeps you underneath this grace. Seven sacraments of the Catholic faith. They empower a person to remain in God's favor from the womb to the tomb. That's how they look at it. You start with baptism and then communion and then confirmation and penance and marriage and ordination and last rites. And salvation is maintained through these sacraments. And it's maintained through these personal acts of contrition. And God's favor is a lot about staying within the rules and not very much about a relationship. I have met some within the Catholic tradition who believe in faith alone, but they're the minority because the official teaching of the church is that salvation is maintained through the sacramental system, okay? Which is where guilt comes in. I mean, I'm just going to bring it right out there. Most of the Catholics I talk to say, you know what? When I was growing up, I just had this huge cloud of guilt over me all the time. And it was all about whether I'd said enough Hail Marys or I'd done enough Our Fathers or I'd done enough of this or I'd done enough of this and I never knew if God really loved me or not. And how long has it been since I've been to confession? And what happens if I die and I didn't go to confession and, you know, those sins are still hanging out there and there's mortal and venial sins and how do I make, how do I make all this stuff happen? And yes, just this week I did see in the news that the Catholic Church has blessed the use of an iPhone app to help you in your confession. Did you see this? Wall Street Journal title was, Bless Me iPhone for I Have Sinned. It's a $1.99 app. I'm not making it up, and I'm not laughing about it because I love technology. But the app is for Roman Catholics to help guide them through the sacraments, and it describes, quote, a personalized examination of conscience for each user. It is designed not to replace going to confession, the author said, but to help Catholics with the act, which generally involves admitting sins to a priest in a confessional booth. Catholics still must go to a priest for absolution, but the iPhone app is supposed to help them, okay? And and some of the features are there's a custom examination of conscience based on your age and your sex and your vocation. There's the ability to add sins that are not on the standard list. Bonus, you know, if you can think of some new ones, you can add them in right there. There's a confession walkthrough, including the last time of confession, and there are seven different acts of contrition that you can choose from. Now listen, I love technology. Not as much as LaFonda, but I love technology, okay? I don't have a problem with the app. I think anything that we can use with technology to help us, I love technology always and forever. But going to a priest for absolution is not in Scripture. And acts of contrition is not in Scripture. Again, they, they, they added that, and they know they've added that, and that's fine, okay? But for me, confession is really important. It's important for me to confess to my Father, and the Bible says we should confess our sins one to another. Why? So that we can absolve each other? No, we don't have any power to absolve sins. We don't have any power to forgive sins. We confess to one another so that we can help each other stay out of those sins, so that we can have accountability, so that we can pray for each other. That, that's the way the Bible sets it up, and that's just the difference, okay? And let me give you a personal word here. I grew up in a non-Catholic church. 
But I still grew up under the Jesus plus something plan. Didn't, didn't some of you that weren't Catholic? We can't blame this on Catholics. A lot of us grew up under a system where you were taught amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and then you heard a 45-minute sermon about how you weren't good enough and you didn't measure up and you needed to get your stuff together. And it always left me growing up, <clears throat> always left me thinking, I wonder if I'm in, I wonder if I'm out, you know? It's eternal jeopardy is what I call it. Maybe you grew up that way too, okay? That was kind of the way church was, I think, all the way around back in that day. Catholics are not the only ones who have missed out on grace. That's why it's going to be my Easter message this year. I'm going to come back and hammer it. Don't get me wrong. You do need to do something. You know what you need to do? You need to accept the gift. Ephesians 2, Paul said, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in judgment... No, God is rich in mercy, and He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, he goes on, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The, the idea is Jesus plus nothing. That's Scripture Zero. I mean, if you think about it, how could you add anything to the cross of Jesus Christ? If Jesus' horrible death on the cross can't pay for our sins, why do I think me saying a few prayers or doing a few acts of contrition is going to add to that? That just doesn't make any sense to me. There is zero that you can do to add to the cross of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace. And a lot of people from a lot of different churches, they, they view God as this angry, judgmental watchdog who's waiting for you to do something fun so he can throw a lightning bolt at you and that's not who God is God is our heavenly father he is the one who left the 99 sheep in the open field Jesus said and went searching for the one lost sheep he was more concerned for the one lost sheep than the 99 he already had and when you realize you're not the 99 you're the one then you can finally start to understand how to live your Christian life in gratitude. The old way uses guilt as a motivator. The Old Testament and the way some of us grew up used, it, used guilt as a motivator. And the idea, I think, was you fell in a pit and you're dirty and you're slimy and you can't get out of a pit. And the old way was, hey, you know what? Maybe I'll get good enough so that I'll clean myself up enough so that when God comes by, he'll look in the hole and he'll go, okay, I'll take you and you and you and I'll be on the list and he'll pull me up. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is, I fell in a pit, I'm dirty, I'm stinky, I'm no good, and all of us in the pit are just like this, and God came along and sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross so that He could reach in and grab all of us and pull us out and then clean us up. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John wrote, in 1 John, something really, really important that I hope you will grab, and then we're going to move on. 1 John 5:13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You could walk out of here today and know that you have eternal life. You know what? I know I have eternal life. There's a bunch of people in here that know we have eternal life. Every once in a while the devil comes and he says, you know what, you're not good enough. And I'm like, yeah, dude, you're right, I know, but get out of here because I got the cross, so I'm okay. But there's a lot of you walking around. There's a lot of you that are walking around in, in, in this church today and you're like, I, I don't know. 
if the roof's going to cave in. I don't know if when I go out and I sin again, if I'm good enough, and I've got to come back here, if I did communion the right way, if I did the right thing. And that is not the way the Father wants you to live. I want you to hear from a friend of mine who grew up in this system and really describes it better than anybody else. Then we're going to spend a time of worship, and then we're going to come back together and commune. I first came to Parkview about 12 years ago. One of my friends um, had just asked me to come and see what I thought of the church he had visited and asked really realistically just for my opinion on it. I had no idea how it was going to change my life. I came and within the first day I was there, it had already been a place where so many of my unanswered questions were answered. As a child, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family and to this day I will be so grateful for where I have started. I had two parents who loved God, who spent much time not only teaching us about God's love, but living it in action. And because of that great love they gave me, I really wanted to please God. But my idea of pleasing Him was following rules correctly. And every time I did something wrong, it was almost as if um, I could feel the pain and the weight of a stone in a backpack. And I would carry that with me all the time. And I felt the guilt and the shame. And I, I know that I could say to God, I'm sorry, but it didn't let it go. And the more I learned about God, in the years to come, I realized something was really wrong. Instead of before God feeling very loved, I felt so much shame. One of my friends had come and she told me about grace. And grace is something that I still couldn't get at that time because I'd been so trained into thinking that I had to make up for all the things I've done wrong. And it was this continual life of doing things right to make up for everything I had wrong, done wrong. And she's saying, well, what about Jesus? You know, how does he fit into the whole thing? And I never thought about, yeah, why, why did Jesus have to die then? If I just say sorry and it's done with, it wasn't on what I had to do. That's where the whole change came. It wasn't about what I had to do to make it right, the good things I would do to change all the bad things I had to do wrong. It was already done for me. He died for me. He was the only sacrifice that could make up for what I had done, for what everyone else had does. And he did it out of his love. And I, I just have looked at the rest of my life of living in freedom from that backpack as a thank you note of love, just to say, you know what, I just want to love you back. And that's what grace has been for me, is I am so free now. I'm so glad that backpack's there, and I'm just so thankful for what he's done. So it isn't so much out of the things that I do that are right nowadays will be because of my fear of not being in heaven with him, that I don't have that right number to be there with him. But what he did for me is so incredible and beautiful that I want the rest of my life just to say, I love you. One of the things that we have to be really grateful for the Catholic Church for 
as the sacrament of communion and how well they preserved it and how holy it is. They, they call it the Eucharist, uh, which means to give thanks, and that's what we do together right now. If you're wondering, should I do it here or should I not? Yes, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should take it here. It's not going to be administered by me. It's going to be two cups that come in a tray. You're going to pick them up, and you're going to take them yourself because you're a priest, so you're going to give yourself communion as it comes by. There's going to be bread in one cup and juice in the other. Take them both as the tray comes by. And we don't care if you're a part of Parkview. If you believe in Jesus, you're welcome to commune with us. We're also going to do... A couple of other things that maybe you were used to as a Catholic, and some of you may be comfortable with it, and some of you may not, and that's okay, but we're going to do the sign of the cross. I'm going to do the sign of the cross. Now, that's not in the Bible um, to do the sign of the cross, neither is having heat, but you're glad that we do that, right? So it's okay. Um, it, just because something's not in there doesn't mean we don't do it. What the problem with the sign of the cross for a lot of people is that it just became some kind of a rote thing that they forgot what it really ever meant. The early church for, for millennia w- greeted each other with the sign of the cross, and it was an important thing for them. Uh, if you're not comfortable with it, it's okay. But here's what I'm going to do. Before we take the bread, we're going to do this, the sign of the cross. Now, one of the parts of the sign of the cross is that Jesus said we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul soul and all our mind and all our strength. And so what you're doing when you're making the sign of the cross is you're saying, my mind and my heart and my strength are all going to follow you. We'll do that before the bread. And then after we take the cup, we will come back together and we will make the sign of the cross in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we're also going to do the Lord's Prayer together. People say, well, they, they ask me all the time, how come we don't say the Lord's Prayer together as a church? Well, it's, it's really simple. It's because Jesus didn't say, this is what you should pray. He said, this is how you should pray. Okay? Anytime we start doing the same thing over and over and over again, it turns into something that becomes about that thing instead of what that thing was supposed to mean. Jesus wasn't saying you are supposed to pray this exact prayer. You're supposed to pray, hey God, you're holy and I praise you and I'm thankful. You don't have to say give us this day our daily bread. You might be on Adkins, okay? You can say give us this day our daily whatever, okay? It, what, it's not about bread. It's about our daily sustenance. It, it's, it's for Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But, but it's about, Lord, we need your forgiveness. And Lord, I need your help to forgive those around me. And I'll end up with the, the addition of for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're going to do that at the end of communion. I just want to kind of walk you through that. Okay. Um, so here's the deal. If you're sitting in this crowd right now and you're saying, I don't know that I have eternal life, like John was writing in his epistle. I don't know that I have that. Well, I, I really want to invite you as we commune together right now and have a conversation with God about that. Because as, as we're going to pray, the, the, the devil stays out of this right now. As we're going to pray for you and God to make a connection. I think God's going to help you to understand. And if you don't think that you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior then the Bible says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says, call on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You really just need to say right now, God, I'm in a pit, I'm dirty, I'm slimy, and I can't get myself clean enough to get out. Save me. I'm sorry for my sin. I accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, and I need to follow him. That's what this communion time will be all about. I hope that you'll accept And Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come right now to communion and we're just going to remember for a moment what you did for us on the cross. And I guess that's why I get a little aggravated when I start thinking about adding anything to the cross because 
I know what the cross cost you. And I know how hard the cross was. There couldn't have been anything harder. And if your perfect death on the cross wasn't enough for all of my sin, it's not enough for any of my sin. And I'm doomed. But thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thank you, Jesus, for your death on the cross that nailed all of my sin to the cross and broke open the the veil in the temple and gave me direct access to God and covered over all of my sin. I'm thankful for your grace. Be with us all right now. There are people in this room that need to open up their hearts to you for the first time, or maybe it's been a while. Let them do that. Let them say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I know I'm not good enough. I, I need you to save me. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. All of us, we commune with you right now, and we're thankful for this gift. We ask these things in your name.